This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Turn to our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter five. Obviously, this is an important Christmas text. Deals with leaven. There's a lot of baking that happens during Christmas, and so it's very applicable. All right, well. Just get right to the exposition and quit the, the uh, attempts at humor. All right. <laughs> of course, you know this is the third week we've been in this text, and you know how I try to delay getting into just even reading this passage. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as, in fact, you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, as we uh, come to this passage again, we um, just kind of setting things up. In verse 1, Paul tells us that there's a report of immorality, and it is actually uh, a shocking form of immorality. So shocking, so awful, that not even in the Greco-Roman world was this something that was acceptable. And so if it's not even acceptable among the Romans, you know how really awful it must have been. And um, Paul is shocked, though, not just because of the nature of the sin. What he's really shocked about is the fact that the Corinthians have become puffed up instead of mourning and doing something about it. In a sense, his, his shock is more over the Corinthians' lack of, of attention to this than the actual sin itself. And so, <clears throat> in this passage, uh, Paul twice is going to express shock over their pride uh, and their lack of mourning and their lack of biblical action. It grieves him. They should have exercised church discipline, but instead they were puffed up. And then in verses 3 through 5, which we looked at last week, 
we see that Paul takes, uh, in a sense, apostolic and prophetic action. And um, I, would, I would suggest, even as we did last week, that, that Paul sees basically the reading of his letter in the gathered Corinthian assembly as an apostolic and prophetic act whereby uh, his, he is present, not in some mystical way, but by virtue of the Holy Spirit um, through the reading of his letter. So remember, um, New Testament epistles are written because apostles couldn't be present. They were written because they were absent. They were written because something needed to be said to the uh, Ephesians, and yet Paul was in Corinth, and something needed to be said to the Romans, but Paul was in Ephesus and so forth. And so here, Paul is, um, in a sense, prescribing for the Corinthians um, the action that they're to take, which is to deliver this offender over to Satan. And it's probably important, because the, the NAS actually uh, muddies this a little bit because of the way in, that they do verse 5, where you see, I have decided, which is in italics, I've decided to deliver such a one. Um, Paul is not just acting unilaterally. Paul is acting and um, really hoping to motivate the Corinthians to act with him, right? And so the act of discipline is described as uh, delivering him to Satan for the purpose of the destruction of the flesh, for then the ultimate purpose that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, Um, Although there are different perspectives on what this means, I think that Paul has in mind here that the man is put out of the church. That much is is clear. And in putting him out of the church, he's put out from underneath the protection and the blessing of being in the body of Christ. And then he's, as it were, thrown back into the dominion of darkness, thrown back into Satan's uh, world, in a sense. And the hope is, is that out from underneath the protection and blessing of the body, he now experiences, in a sense, the hardship of, uh, of being under the dominion of darkness once again, and that that brings him to repentance, and that repentance, of course, leads to his final salvation. It's important to notice that, um, that although Paul doesn't say it explicitly, it's strongly implied that... Um, that if there is no repentance, if there's no destruction of the flesh, um, then there's no reason to believe that he would be saved on the last day. Okay. So church discipline is designed to bring about repentance, which is repentance unto life. Okay. Um, and so that brings us to our passage tonight, which is verses 6 through 8. Paul's going to actually rebuke them again for their arrogance and, uh, by the way, their ignorance. Both of those are going to work together, verse 6. Verses 7 and 8, Paul's going to give an exhortation to uh, clean out the old and celebrate the new. The final paragraph, 9 to 13, Paul is explaining something that he wrote in a previous letter, and we'll obviously get to that next week. And so what we actually see in this section, 6 through 8, 
is we see uh, not only the importance of the idea of cleaning out the the leaven and, and the leaven principle, that's the main thing, but what we see is really Paul's Christ-centered ethic here. He doesn't just simply, uh, in a sense, sort of give some Old Testament texts and then turn around and say, now, you know, go thou and do likewise. What he does is he, he brings up... Um, an Old Testament principle, uh, which is related to Passover. And then he ends up interpreting Passover for us Christocentrically, right? So that, so that Christ actually ends up being the, the primary focus of, of this section, in a sense, and, uh, and then bases their action on the indicative, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed, and the fact that you already are a new lump, right? So, okay, so I'm looking at a n- new lump. You're, some, some of you are lumpier than others. But, uh, but what he does is he says there, there's this imperative. You're to take out the, the, the old because of its infectious power. But the reason that you're to do that is so that you can become new. But you're already new. Right, And so this is actually, we'll look at this more, but this is Paul's view of Christian ethics. In a sense, be what you already are. Okay? That, that is actually very important. So Gordon Fee makes this great comment. I can't tell you how much I appreciate his commentary. He says, the death of Christ makes them new, yet they must get rid of the old in order to be new, precisely because in Christ they are already new. You follow that? Thus, no, do in order to be, but do because you are. Right? Okay. All right, so let's begin with Paul's uh, rebuke of their boasting in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Now, if you remember, when we covered verse 2, we talked about what could they possibly be puffed up about, Right? And um, what's interesting is one commentator that I really like, David Garland, he, he gets to this point and he, he has tried to make the case all along that, that the, uh, the sin of the offender has nothing to do with the Corinthian boasting. In fact, he insists at this point, he says, it is inconceivable, just like in The Princess Bride, inconceivable for anyone to have been tempted to boast about such perversion given the widespread antipathy toward it. In other words, uh, Garland says, there's no way that the Corinthians could be boasting about this, about this perversion because it is so absolutely awful. It's not acceptable anywhere. And um, if I actually were in a room with Dr. Garland, I would, I would say something like this. The point is not that they're boasting about the sin itself. What they're boasting about is the way that they have responded to this particular sinner. Of course it's inconceivable that they would be boasting about some kind of incestuous relationship, but what they are boasting about is their own liberal attitude towards the offender. What they're boasting about is their own um, their own sense of love and liberty, right? And so they thought that they were really extraordinary when it came to grace. Look at how much grace we give to this guy. 
I mean, he's, in fact, it's, it's the awfulness of the sin that probably made the boasting all the more uh, terrible in and of itself, right? This guy is so bad, and, and everybody knows what he's doing is so, but we have so much grace, so much love. We are so, we are, we are such a progressive congregation, first century progressives. Paul says, your boasting is not good. <laughs> now, you have to understand, Paul's actually making a, uh, a moral quality statement here. He said that your boasting actually lacks any moral virtue whatsoever. It is positively not good. Because in your boasting, there is a failure to see how this man's sin has both affected and infected the body. This is why their boasting is not good, because it has been a failure for them to see the very principle Paul's now going to talk about. And how many times, actually, have we experienced in our own journey through Christ's church where there would be not necessarily the blatant, outright, direct condoning of sin, but attitudes related to people in those sins that just seem to be so broad-minded and so open and, and so loving and so kind and almost taking a sense of pride in, in, in that kind of attitude. And yet, what, what's going on is that there's a blindness to the actual nature of the sin in the body. This is why, and and I'll probably say this about four or five more times between tonight and next week, that's why churches that, that fail to discipline biblically have a huge blind spot about the way sin affects the body. And if you have a huge blind spot about the way sin affects the body, then then you are going to have um, basically infections breaking out all over the place and be completely uh, uh, clueless as to why these things are happening the way they're happening. R.C. Sproul is fond of saying that ideas have consequences. It's true. But actions have consequences. And sometimes lack of action has consequences. And so that's what Paul's getting at here. Your boasting is not good. Why? Now notice, this is, this is really masterful, right? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, by the way, this is one of Paul's favorite um, devices. Do you not know? You know what he's doing when he says, do you not know, right? He's saying, in essence, you should really know this. You should already know this. In fact... Paul uses do you not know in many of his letters. Do you know where he uses it the most? Just take a guess. 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians. Why? Because they were living in a way that was contrary to what they should have known. Do you not know? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do, I, mean, I mean, he goes, I have all the, actually, the, not even all. I have a scad of the passages just in 1 Corinthians alone where he starts off with, do you not know? In some sense, it is an indictment of an ignorance that is a willful ignorance that should not be. All right? You got that? It's an indictment of an ignorance that is a willful ignorance that simply should not be. And so he says, do you not know? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Where does that come from? Well, poor Richard's almanac, of course. Is there a Bible verse that says a little leaven leavens the whole lump? (laughs) There's there's actually, except right here. (laughs) Paul's not quoting a Bible verse, but what he's doing is he's quoting something that was proverbial and biblical. All right? Now, what's interesting is at this point, when Paul says this, don't you know, you, you should know this, a little, a tiny, a, a micron, right, of leaven, leavens the whole lump. Don't you know that? You should know that. If, I mean, by the way, it's common sense. Now, at that point, at that point, when Paul says that, where is his primary concern? With the offender or with the body as a whole? Is with the body as a whole, right? And this is, again, uh, we, we, we touched on this before, but this is something that is absolutely so crucial, is that when, when discipline happens, we have to understand that there's a, there's a hierarchy of concerns and the restoration of the offender is not always the primary concern. In fact, Calvin in, in the Institutes actually um, makes a comment about church discipline and he says, the reason why we do church discipline is so that people who shouldn't be called Christians aren't called Christians. Right? In other words, the testimony of Christ's body has priority over the restoration of the offender, the purity of Christ's body, the protection of Christ's body actually ends up being... Now, of course, even in this passage, there's a concern. We want him to be saved. We want him to be, his spirit to be saved. In the day of the Lord Jesus, we want him to come to repentance. All of that is absolutely and utterly true. But as Paul looks at the big picture, he's saying, you have to understand that your boasting is actually dangerous, and it's dangerous not just to the offender, but it's dangerous to the entire body. Why? Because of the fundamental principle that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. It is, this is a proverb. It is actually a Jewish proverb, and it has many parallels. In fact, we have a similar proverb, don't we? Uh, Stitch in time saves nine. No, that's not right. A bad apple does what? 
Yeah, spoils the whole bunch. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. What's the, what's the idea is that you have a bad apple and what happens is the, what, what makes an apple bad? What's that? Okay, a worm. Worm crawls in, the worm crawls out. I could go on, but I'll stop there. Okay. Okay, uh, if, if, if the fruit starts to get rotten... What happens? Does the healthy fruit around it share its health so it, it, it slows down the rottenness or does the rottenness spread? The rottenness spreads. That's the whole idea of the principle is that there is a spreading influence, an infecting influence. And in fact, when God instructed his people on how to observe the Passover, he tells them this really interesting thing that they are to go through their homes and do what? Get rid of all of the leaven. Why would you keep leaven around? Well, the answer is Amish friendship bread. You guys know Amish friendship bread, right? I guess the Amish made it up, but, and what do you do? Somebody tell me, because you have a starter batch, right? And what does it have in it? It's got yeast. And so as you share it, guess what you're sharing? Yeast, right? Yeah. So here, let me, let me share my leaven with you. And then you, each new batch is what? It's infected with the old batch, right? And somehow, this is a sign of friendship. Uh, <laughs> don't really know how that part works, but the principle is, is actually pretty easy. That is, every year they had to go through and they had to clean out the leaven. It's kind of interesting. Some of the commentators say, not only was there, um, this is uh, Exodus 12, by the way, not only is there um, a, a, a biblical or theological principle that's being conveyed to to the Israelite homes of removing the leaven. Uh, But there probably also may have well been some health concerns. Why? Because uh, over time, the leaven gets more and more contaminated, right? And as it becomes more and more contaminated, it becomes more and more dangerous. It ends up serving as a really good picture, right? They are to end up, the the idea is, is that they're to be consecrating themselves and their households before they do what? Before they participate in the Passover. And so the idea of removing all of the leaven was an act of consecration to prepare them for the Passover. And so, um, so, so leaven actually ends up serving as a really, really good uh, picture of that which can contaminate. And so it becomes a picture in the Bible, not always, but a lot of times, a picture of evil. Right? Leaven is oftentimes associated with evil. And, of course, the analogy is the way that evil or sin can spread and infect the whole. 
So the proverb itself, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Well, if, if, if you're making a new lump and you have a little bit of leaven, and that, well, that's all fine and good, but the proverb ends up meaning this, and that is you need to watch the leaven because it only takes a little bit to spread throughout the whole. That's actually the way leaven works. And if, if we see leaven as sort of an indicator or a picture of evil or sin, that's the idea, is that just a little bit actually ends up spreading and permeating the whole in a very short period of time. Isn't it interesting that in this very epistle, in chapter 15, which we'll get to in about the year 2021, Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. In the Proverbs, if you are given to being around angry people, what kind of person will you become? You'll become an angry person too, right? This is, this is something that I, that I find so important to remind our young people because, and actually all the rest of the old people too, we have an idea that Somehow, we're going to be the ones to lift up those who are bad apples. We're we're actually going to be able to diffuse leaven. And the fact is, is that there is a principle, and that is, uh, it's called uh, gravity, right? What, what is gravity? Right? Well, it's a law of nature, but it means it's easier to pull something down than pull something up. Right? There is, in a sense, a spiritual law of gravity, and that is, if you hang around people who don't love the Lord, who love the world, if you hang around worldly people, that's your closest circle. Paul's going to argue at the end of this chapter, by the way, I don't mean you you never are around them because that means you'd have to leave the world right? So, so there's, there's obviously an interaction and stuff, but if you find yourself only surrounded with unbelievers and you only find yourself uh, in close association and friendship with worldly people, guess what? You're going to be pulled down before you ever pull them up. Mark my words. It doesn't happen the way that we think it's going to happen. And so Paul says, here's the principle, it's really simple, a little bit of leaven spreads through, permeates, takes the whole lump with it. And so Paul then in verses 7 and 8 gives an exhortation to clean out the old and celebrate the new. And so verse 7, clean out the old leaven, that's the Exodus 
12 passage, so that you may be a new lump. So this is Old Testament ceremony, it's Old Testament command. But now, Paul actually kind of has a little, uh, a little shift that happens here. He goes from um, a tiny bit and the whole now to old and new, all right? Get rid of the old leaven. Just like the Jewish homes would do before Passover, so you, the church, needs to do this. You need to get rid of the old leaven. Why? Because it's dangerous, it's a health hazard, it is infectious, it is a contaminant, and it will end up destroying the whole. It's kind of interesting um, Hosea 7.4, Hosea says, They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is all leavened. And so when Paul says here, you're to clean out the old leaven, well, obviously within the immediate context, it means clearly the removal of the unrepentant offender. Clean out the old leaven. This is, by the way, we'll see this um, next week. Paul is absolutely clear that it is removal that is in view. It's, it's, it's not um, give them a time out. It's removal. And so the removal of the unrepentant Offender is the idea of taking out the old leaven, that which has the, uh, the, the capacity to permeate and infect the whole. But there's also, in a sense, sort of a broader principle here at work, right? And that is, here's, here's the principle. Make sure that you are removing the old leaven. This is not just a one-time thing regarding discipline. This is to be something that is going on all the time. This is a broad principle. And it's a broad principle corporately and it's a broad principle individually. Be removing the old leaven. In particular... Paul could look at the Corinthian situation and say that the sin that you guys are are tolerating out of your largeness of heart, right? That sin is like a toxin, it's a poison, it's a cancer, it's gangrene, and it's going to spread. You got to get rid of it. But the same actually holds true uh, throughout all of church life and throughout our individual Christian lives. You have to be removing the old leaven. Because the principle abides. A little bit of leaven ruins the whole lump. And so Paul says, get rid of the old, I love this, in order that you become a new lump. <laughs> That's really, it's an incredibly flattering way to put it. Some of our Bible translations Try to make it a little bit like pat, a batch of dough. It's just a lump, right? And so the removal of the leaven from their midst is the way that they end up experiencing uh, the, the, the newness of what it means to be God's people, to be God's holy people. 
It is, it is actually going to be this action of removing the old that actually leads them to experience the newness. And then Paul turns around, and this is, this is wonderful. He turns around and he says, so that in order that you become a new lump, just as you are. Just as you are. This is Paul's view of Christian ethics. Why should you clean out the old in order to become new? Because you're new. Why should you as a Christian put on Christ? Because you're clothed with Christ. Why should you as a Christian put to death the deeds of the body? Because the deeds of the body have been put to death. Why should you as a Christian seek to be holy? Because you're holy. This is, this is the way that Paul's ethic works. You are to be what you already are. Paul's not giving us, in a sense, some sort of, uh, some sort of religious, uh, hoops to jump through in order that we might become something that we, that we are not presently. He's actually telling us, listen, what you need to be committed to is letting your lives and your actions match up with the reality of what you already are in Jesus Christ. I mean, in a sense, when, when, when we are living lives of, of inconsistency, okay? when we are living lives where, where we're not living up to what the Bible calls us to be, uh, the, the, the problem is, is that we are actually failing to be what we already are. And so I am a child of God, but when I'm, I'm acting like a child of the devil, my fundamental problem is not that I'm a child of the devil, it's that I'm not living like what I already am in Christ. The inconsistency, I mean, so my, my former pastor, Jim Andrews, used to say that the most painful thing about the Christian life is that we find ourselves to be walking contradictions. You ever feel that? If you say, I don't know what you're talking about, then... <laughs> I would uh, suggest getting saved right away. And then you know what I'm talking about. This is, this is unfortunately our experience. And so Paul's admonition is not to direct them to become something, but to be what they already are. And so you have to understand, this is, this is what makes Christianity so different. Is that this is not just some kind of moral advice. I mean, the world's full of, of moral advice. You know, the, 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 the world is full of, uh, you know, of, of Nike ethics, you know, just do it. Um, the world is full of the kind of moral advice. In fact, let's just forget the world. The church is full of moral advice. Be better, be stronger, be wiser, you know, uh, uh, be good. Roger and I remember a, 
a sermon preached by a famous preacher that will remain nameless, and that sermon was, if you want to be good, you got to do good. If you're a Mormon, absolutely. Right? If you're a JW, absolutely. Hey, even if you're a Roman Catholic, absolutely. But if you're in Christ... No way. This is not just moral advice on how to be a better person. This is actually something that is revolutionary. It is, it is not just be better, not just do better, try harder. It is a reminder of God's grace that has already come to us in its fullness in Jesus Christ. It is a reminder of what God has already done for them and for us. And in reminding us what God has already done, that's the greatest motivation to be what we already are. <laughs> when, when I was uh, first a new believer, you have to remember, my, I, I, was, I was steeped in Roman Catholicism. You talk about motivated by guilt, okay? Motivated by guilt was, that was the chief uh, weapon, okay? That was the chief weapon, motivation by guilt. And um, my mom was kind of a liberal hippie, so she didn't really get much into that. But man, my grandparents were pretty good at it. The priest was really good at it. Our teachers were really good at it. Motivate by guilt. And so when I became a new Christian, what do you think my primary motivation was in obeying the Lord? Just want to avoid guilt. I'm not saying avoiding guilt is a bad thing. I think avoiding guilt you know, is actually a pretty good thing. But you know, there's a motivation... This is, and this, this actually goes hand in hand with self-righteousness and legalism. And that is, the, the reason that you should do this is, and then lay the guilt on. And the reason you should do this, lay the guilt on. And then, when the person doesn't do that, then you double down on the guilt. But here's, here's the problem. How, how good of a motivator is guilt? Guilt is like this. I'm not talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the way, all right? I'm talking about something different. Guilt is like this. You go to Chinese food, and you eat, and you eat, and you eat. And you get really full, fast, right? And you get up, and you walk out, and you're like, oh, I am never going to eat again. That's how guilt works, right? And how long, how long, does, how long does that resolve last? I'm never going to eat again. Until dessert. <laughs> Until you get hungry. Until you get hungry. And so this is, so as, as, as fallen people, we may have guilt over our sin and we may be resolved to do better but the that resolve only lasts until 
you want to do the sin again. And then where's the guilt? Well, the guilt's actually nowhere to be found. Because the desire for the sin outweighs the desire to avoid guilt. It's actually, it's actually just quite a simple principle. We do what we want to do because of our desires. And what the New Testament does for us is the New Testament reorients us and doesn't try to motivate us by this, just by the, some sort of guilt complex. The New Testament motivates us with, by the way, a whole variety of motivations. But one of the primary ways the New Testament motivates us to live Christian lives that are pleasing to the Lord is not on the basis of guilt, but it's on the basis of what God in Christ has already done for us. It's not just this sense of, oh my goodness, I blew it. I know that I can do better. I know that I can do better. I am so angry with myself. I need to forgive myself and then get on. That's just a bunch of nonsense. The real motivation is is this. God has already shown you a Abundant mercy and grace. And God has changed you. And God has made you new. And you are in Christ. And you are a new creation. And you've been adopted uh, into the beloved. And you are accepted by God because of Jesus Christ. And you're clothed in his righteousness. This is what God has declared you to be. This is what God has made you to be. Now therefore, how could you live any other way? And so Paul says, just as you are, be that new lump, just as you are. And then Paul says this, for indeed, Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, you guys know all about the indicative and the imperative, right? Indicative, what's that? All about it. Um, The indicative, of course, are the statements of fact. The imperatives are the commands. And the way that the New Testament ethic works is that the indicatives are the basis and motivation and power for the imperatives. That's the way it works. So the indicatives, all right, are the basis, so because God has done this, we are to do this, but it's not just that, it is not just the basis of the imperative, it is also the motivation for the imperatives, and it's also the empowerment for the imperatives, right? So you see the way, say, the way it works. So look at what Paul does. Here's the imperative, become a new lump, Imperative, indicative. Why should you become a new lump? Because you're already a new lump. Okay? Imperative, indicative, all right? Now, here's the ground for the indicative. This is, if you think of it this way, the indicative of the indicative. This is, in other words, this is why I can say you're already a new lump. For indeed, emphatic, by the way, for indeed, 
Christ, our Passover lamb, our Paschal lamb, has been sacrificed. This is why you're already a new lump. Christ's death, obviously, in the Gospels, is associated with what Jewish feast? In fact, John's Gospel actually tells us that Jesus' death happened on this Jewish feast. What's that? Yeah, Passover. Yeah, right? Passover. It's actually, in John's Gospel, it's, it's, so, it's actually really blatant. Jesus is is being crucified while Jews all throughout the city are observing Passover. There's a sense in which the Gospels not only make that connection, but the Passover lamb itself is is clearly a type of the Lord Jesus. And so one of the things that we get when we get to the Gospels is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, he was the Lamb, First uh, Peter 1, 18, by whose blood we've been redeemed, not by perishable things like silver and gold, but imperishable, that is the blood of the Lamb. And so the Passover Lamb was clearly a type. And what did the Passover Lamb do for the people? Well, the blood of the Paschal Lamb was both protection, right? It saved you from the destroyer. Saved you from the destroyer. But in the observance of Passover, that lamb was slain, not only as a reminder of being protected against the destroyer, but it was also slain as a reminder to the community that they were a new community, a forgiven community. The shedding of blood was not only protection against the angel of death, but it was also a purifying reality for the forgiveness of their sins. And so when that Passover lamb was slain, the idea was is that not only was this the basis of their protection, but this was also their purification. And so after their purification, then what do they do? They end up consecrating themselves by removing all of the leaven. That is, all of this actually works together. So David Garland makes the comment, he says, what's important to Paul in this context is that Christ's death is supposed to affect change in their moral behavior. Just as sure as Christ himself is the Passover lamb who was slain to protect us from the wrath of God and to purify us through the forgiveness of our sins and to change us into a new lump, therefore you have to understand that Christ's death is not just the forgiveness of your sins, it's the transformation of your person. It's the transformation of the community. Isn't it interesting that when the angel speaks to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Now, by the way, that's a sermon. Oh, maybe I'll preach that Sunday morning. Okay. Mm. 
may be. Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Yahweh saves. For he, Yeshua, shall save. But just stop there. I'm just going to preach the sermon right now. Think about, think about that connection. You're going to call his name Jesus. Okay? Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. For, here's why you call him that. For he shall save his people from their sins. Why would you call him Yahweh saves? Because he saves. Why? Well, because he's Yahweh incarnate. Okay? This is are you, is this registering? I mean, this is this is really good stuff, right? But notice that here's 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 the point of quoting the passage. He shall save his people from their sins. Notice it doesn't say he shall save his people in their sins. He saves his people from their sins. And so the salvation that comes to us through Christ, our Passover lamb, who has been sacrificed, the salvation that comes to us is not just a salvation that appeases the wrath of God on our behalf. It does that. It doesn't just uh, cleanse us, purify us through his blood. It does that. that. That's the forgiveness of sins. But it also actually does something else, and that is it transforms us. It changes us. How are you made new? I think Paul would say, at least here, here's how you're made new. Our Passover lamb was sacrificed for us. That's how you're made new. That's interesting. This is the only place where Paul refers to Christ as our Passover lamb, which in a sense sort of leads us to to believe that, um, that studying the Old Testament with Paul would have been absolutely fascinating. Right? I mean, really, I mean, we have 13 letters from Paul. How much of, the, uh, of his interpretation of the Old Testament do we actually have? Well, actually, probably just a, a, a little bit, just a, 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 a relatively minor representation of maybe his entire Old Testament theology. Right? And when you get to heaven, it's not like Paul's going to teach Old Testament theology because... Just as sure as pastors and teachers are out of a job in heaven, Paul's out of a job in heaven. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like God says, okay, Paul's going to be teaching Isaiah at 1 o'clock. Don't miss it or else you're not going to understand it. It's not the way it's going to work. But here's Paul and he sees that Christ, our Passover lamb, he's the one that makes us new. And so he then concludes with this. So then, celebrate. And celebration, of course, is a reference to the seven-day Jewish festival. And during that time, of course, how much leaven could you eat? None. Zero. Did you, did you grow up observing this, scale? Okay. No leaven for seven days. Gluten-free. 
But here's the thing. What the Jews did for a seven-day festival, Paul says, so then let us be celebrating, present imperative actually, the idea of let us continually be celebrating Christ, our Passover, there's, there's actually something wonderful about the present imperative here. So how many Passover lambs were killed every year before Christ? Oh my goodness, how, do you even, how could you even calculate the number, right? But the idea was is that, so let's say the Wellers were like an Old Testament Jewish family. And uh, so every year, guess what they'd have to do? They couldn't say, you know that lamb we, we killed two years ago? That was really a great lamb, so maybe we don't have to do a lamb this year. Didn't work that way. New lamb every year, right? Now that Jesus has come, and Jesus is the Passover lamb who has been slain, Jesus has been slain, book of Hebrews, once and for all. Therefore, there's no longer any necessary shedding of blood because The only blood that ultimately matters has already been shed. And so just as sure as as there's not a repetition of the the, uh, uh, Passover sacrifice, so the the idea of celebration is not limited to seven days either. This This is something that is continual based on the once and for all sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. And so the reason to be continually celebrating this is because this is no longer an annual sacrifice. It's a once-for-all-time sacrifice. And so our celebration should be a celebration of the forgiveness of our sins and the newness of life. And how do we actually celebrate that? Well, by living holy lives. Think about that. God actually calls us to, to, to celebrate the Passover festival, as it were, which is ultimately celebrate the death of Christ for us. And how do you do that? You do that by being what you are. Let's not lose sight of this. The reason they should celebrate Notice this, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven. The only way they can truly celebrate the feast is if they deal with the old leaven. Because it's an absolute contradiction to say that you value the death of Christ for the forgiveness of, the sin, of our sins and making us new and then tolerate the presence of the old. Absolute contradiction. And so, the idea was is that no leaven in the celebration, just like in the Old Testament, no leaven in the celebration. And then Paul says, neither in the leaven of wickedness and evil, this is actually the, the, the qualifier here, which is probably um, 
not absolutely necessary. You get the point, but Paul actually is in a sense underscoring the importance of what he's talking about. You don't celebrate in the old leaven, that is the leaven of wickedness and evil. By the way, wickedness and evil come together. They form a figure of speech called a hendiatus, two ways of saying one thing, and that is the, the idea of all forms of sin and wickedness. And so his point is, is that we've been freed from the old leaven. That's not what marks our new life of celebration. And yet that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And Paul makes it clear, you don't celebrate the newness of life by keeping the old leaven around. But here's how you celebrate it. But in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity, the quality or state of being free of dissimulation. Sincerity, purity of motive. Truth, the quality of being in accord with what is true. Truthfulness, dependability, uprightness in both thought and deed. And again, sincerity and truth come together to create a a unit of thought. And that would be you celebrate the unleavened bread with authentic honesty with a truthfulness where our lives are in accord with what God has said. Fee puts it like this in the negative, without sham or deceit. Don't go celebrating the unleavened bread of sham and deceit because it's, it's contradictory, it doesn't exist. What this is, it's called holiness, called to celebrate as sincere and faithful people. You know, being a sincere person doesn't mean that you're a perfect person. But it does mean what we are on the inside generally matches up with what we are on the outside. John Owen, my favorite Puritan, said this, what we are in our solitudes is all that we are. Paul says, If you're going to celebrate the new, do it in sincerity and truth. Unfortunately, Christians have a reputation of being fakers, right? You ever notice? We try to act and look better than we are. Paul actually thought that sincerity and truth is a much better reflection of what we really are. So Christ died for us, his people, so that we'd be forgiven and transformed created into a new community, living sincerely and truthfully. 
And when we tolerate sin, both in our lives and in the life of the church, we're denying who and what we are. A friend of mine posted something today that I thought was great. When you become a member of a church, you have signed up to be sinned against. True? True? Yeah. Because there's this, there's this like insidious reality that says the church that I'm going to belong to only has sinners in it. And sinners are notorious for sinning. Not in the abstract either, but in personal ways, direct ways, right? And so... We're not saying by any stretch that what Paul's trying to do is, is to so purify the church that there's no more sin. That's not the issue. The issue is, hey, there's going to be sin. Deal with it. Don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate it in your own life. Don't tolerate it in the life of the church because when we do, when we make those peace treaties, when we say this is okay, that's okay, I don't need to deal with that, that's the way God made me, that's the way I am, blah, 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 that we are denying who and what we are and we are also allowing the infectious nature of sin and evil to spread both in our lives and in the church. The law of death and decay. If we let sin go unchecked, it will ruin us. And so discipline is necessary for the protection and the purity of the church. And I would say that self-discipline through God's grace is necessary for our own protection and our own purity. What that means is that we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be truthful with ourselves. And we have to stop making excuses for ourselves. Don't make excuses for being an angry person. Don't make excuses for being a lustful person. Don't make excuses for being a gossipy person. Don't make excuses for being a covetous person. Sincerity and truth demand that we war with the old leaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would faithfully reveal to us the leaven that's at work in our own hearts and the leaven that may be at work in our own body. And we pray that you would help us to be so filled with gratitude and confidence for all that you've done and all you promised to do 
that we would have the faith to press towards being what we are. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us not to be blinded by our own arrogance. Help us to see, to know, to understand, and to fight. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.